Welcome. I am Sheila Murthy, founder and president of the Murthy Law Firm. I am delighted and honored to have with me today two of our brilliant attorneys, Chris Drynan and Korzad Mehta. Both, or each of them rather, I should say, has over 10 years experience in U.S. immigration law. They are brilliant, bright, smart, knowledgeable, and have a lot of experience with non-immigrant uh, visas, particularly H-1Bs. In today's uh, discussion, we will talk about the uh, process as well as some tips to hopefully help you and your company to timely file the H-1 so that you can meet this year's cap and hopefully get all of your approvals with all of the fabulous, fabulous tips that we can discuss today. Again, we're always mindful of your time, so we hope to have uh, and wrap up the discussion in approximately 30 to 45 minutes. So let's get started with you, Chris. What exactly is the H-1B cap? How does it work? And I apologize to those for some of you. This may seem very fundamental and basic, but we just like to be able to explain everything to everybody in case there are people who are not as familiar. So, Chris? Well, Sheila, the H-1B cap is an annual limit on the number of new H-1B workers. Uh, that's presently set at, set at 65,000 per year. Um, of those 65,000, there are really only 58,500 uh, that are available because a certain number of, uh, of visas are set aside for people who are from Chile and Singapore. Uh, they're eligible for what are called H-1B1 visas, which is a discussion for another day. Mm -hmm. um, there are also so basically you're saying if somebody has an employee from Chile or Singapore, they have more time to file it, and we can discuss that, you know, hopefully if you have those, you're lucky to have those employees because you don't have to panic that the quota has been met. In practice, those are typically available all year. Right. Um, there are also an additional 20,000 H-1B visas available for people who have a master's degree or above from a U.S. university. And um, even that, there are very strict limitations, as we will discuss. Yes. And once those extra 20,000 master's cap uh, numbers are used up, um, those people can file in the normal uh, 65,000 H-1B uh, quota. Regular quota. Great. Mm -hmm. That's a wonderful overview. Gets us started on the right track. So, Korzad, when should the employer plan to file the H-1 petition, and how does all of this timing work? Sure, Sheila. Well, one, you have to keep in mind that cap numbers become available at the beginning of the government fiscal year. And the government fiscal year uh, runs from October 1st to the following September 30th. This upcoming uh, government fiscal year, which is fiscal year 2014, is going to start October 1st, 2013. And um, because there are no available H-1B visa numbers for this current fiscal year, government fiscal year that we're in, which is fiscal year 2013, employers filing H-1B petitions for, the, um, for their employees are going to be able to ask for a start date no earlier than October 1st, 2013. The way the regulations are set up, employers who want to file an H-1B petition can file it six months in advance of the uh, of when they first become available in this case like I said October 1st 2014 so that's Thank what you. makes that April 1st 2013 uh, sorry two, yeah 2013 such a uh, important date okay uh, wonderful wonderful and just so that we go over this explanation for each of you um, who is listening to the the conference today um, not everybody's subject to the h1b cap or h1 quota that's why we use the term are you cap exempt or cap subject? Um, so a beneficiary, for example, an employee who has never had an H-1 in the past is generally likely to be subject to the H-1B quota or H-1 cap. 
a person who has been already counted against the cap, but who was either outside the U.S. for one continuous year may choose either to be counted against the cap to receive new full six years in H-1 status or the balance of the time left if they have a few months remaining on their unused prior H status. Um, a physician who has obtained a J-1 waiver through the Conrad program or an interested governmental agency program would be cap exempt. And certain employers are also cap exempt. Uh, and this includes employment at and by a university or their nonprofit affiliates, as well as nonprofit and governmental research organizations. Um, the USCIS is actually reviewing its policy on university affiliations, and they have not yet released their new policy. However, they, they have announced that they will give deference to prior determinations, which were made since June 2006 until the new policy is finally issued. It is important to discuss this with your attorney uh, to determine, you know, to make a decision uh, and to ensure that you file very, very promptly and timely if you're subject to the cap or not have to rush through jumping through a million hoops in a very short time frame if you believe you're clearly cap exempt. So what are the criteria? So I hope that helps you all, but I'm going to jump to Chris now and ask him for what are the criteria or requirements for a person or an employer to file an H-1B petition? Well, in general, Sheila, an H-1B has to be filed for what's called a specialty occupation. Um, as USCIS defines that, it's a, a job, the job must require at least a bachelor's degree or above in a, in a particular field. Um, so a lot of these are filed for IT professionals, doctors, lawyers, uh, accountants, positions like that. Um, now, the, the foreign national, the empl uh, prospective employee here, has to possess the required education or the equivalent at the time of filing. Um, so you have to have it when you file. The fact that you will have it on October 1st does not, does not make the case work. You have to have it as of the day of filing. Um, now, another thing to consider is the fact that the beneficiary, the employee here, has a bachelor's degree or higher, does not automatically make the position a specialty occupation. So if you have someone with a master's degree who's underemployed as a waiter or a sales clerk, doesn't make that an H-1B position. Um, also, if the those are extreme examples. Those were extreme <laughs> examples, but just to, to demonstrate sort of the uh, mm -hmm. the idea here. Um, now, if the pos the position also has to require a bachelor's degree in a particular field, um, if it requires any bachelor's degree, it's not a specialty occupation. Um, the position has has to request a degree in a specific field that's related to the duties of the position. Um, now, if the beneficiary does not have the actual physical diploma at the time of filing, uh, you will need to get a, a letter from the registrar of the school or from the dean of the school verifying that he or she has completed all of the requirements for the degree, and basically you're just waiting for your, for your graduation. But you have to have completed the requirements to receive the degree. Okay, and I know that this is sort of a cultural term because the word school is generally used in America to imply both university, college, and school. Most of the rest of the world, school is usually for kids through high school. So, of course, Chris was referring to the university or the college. Okay, Kurzad, so when should an H-1B employer really start preparing the case? And what are the timelines, I guess, for this year? Well, it is vital 
to plan ahead. We're talking about quotas here, limited availability of uh, you know really desirable uh, visa numbers. So it is vital to plan plan ahead because you never know when those numbers are going to run out. Just last year, the numbers of the available H-1B visas uh, for fiscal year 2013. Uh, ran out in June of 2012. So that means employers who were looking for folks to start work between October 1st, 2013, and, oh, sorry, 2012, and September 30th, 2013, had to get their applications in and uh, by April 1st, 2012, and they all ran out by June of 2012. Uh, please understand, you know, employers, that there are several steps involved in preparing an H-1B petition. M- one of the most important is a labor condition application. Labor condition application, the Department of Labor can take up to seven business days to certify it. So we're talking about timelines here, quotas. The upshot of the entire situation is that starting early is the best way to go. Start early, drive drive slowly, reach safely has never applied better than it does to preparing H-1B petitions. This year, we anticipate that the fiscal year 2014 H-1B visa cap will be exhausted even earlier than June 2012. One can never know for sure, but we're uh, we're, um, operating on the assumption that it will run very, very quickly. Uh, It's important to keep in mind, as the H-1B petition preparation process is very complex, that USCIS is also, in between all of this, subjected H-1B petitions to a lot greater scrutiny and examination. This is particularly true in, uh, in situations where workers are assigned to third-party locations. So to have the best chance for success, it is necessary to be aware of all of the documentary requirements and current policy and adjudication trends, as well as to start the process as early as possible. Well, that makes sense. Uh, we here at the Murthy Law Firm, we're really, really experienced with providing cutting-edge and proactive rec- representation of H-1B cases. Our firm assists H-1B employers and employees by providing guidance and recommendations as to these adjudication tendencies and appropriate strategies to increase the chances of success for each case. We actually go around to national and local conferences speaking about best practices in H-1B filing and preparation. Wonderful. Thank you, Korzad. I saw that you put in a little plug there for the firm. That's great. Okay, Chris, so will the employee or the beneficiary be actually able to change status to H-1 in the U.S.? I mean, what if the OPT is expiring, you know, during the summer, before October 1st, all of that cap gap, Mm -hmm. all of that stuff, because an employer needs to ensure that they're not hiring somebody or, you know, relying on a worker who will have to stop working. Exactly, Sheila. Um, Generally, uh, you can only request to change status to H-1B in the U.S. um, with an October 1st start date. If you have another non-immigrant status, which will continue at least till September 30th, uh, 2013. Um, so if you if you look at the end date on your I-94 card, uh, if that is September 30th or later, you could potentially do a That's change. That's for of any non-immigrant other than F-1. Other than F-1, correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, if you're here on a, a B-2, a visitor's visa, and it expires in July, you're not going to be able to do a change of status. Unless you get an extension of the B-2 or it's been... Which is, which is another issue in and of itself. Right, right. Doesn't right. mean you can't do an H-1B, but it will probably have to be done through the, through the consulate. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're in F-1 or student status, the uh, situation is a little different. Um, if your F-1 status or your optional practical training ends prior to September, prior to September 30, 2013, you may be eligible for what, what's called an automatic cap gap extension. Uh, until September 30th. And to be qualified for that, you have to meet four conditions. Um, Your H-1B petition has to be filed before the expiration of your optional practical training or before the end of the 60-day grace period. Um, 
you have to request a change of status on the H-1B petition. Uh, three, you have to request an October 1st start date on the H-1B petition. And four, lastly, the case has to eventually be approved. Um, now, the cap gap extension starts when, when a student's current period of F-1 status ends, regardless of whether you are on op optional practical training or not at that time. Um, if you're on optional practical training, you're, 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 you're authorized to work at the time of filing, then your work authorization will continue till September 30th. Um, if you're not, if you don't have optional practical training at that time, or if you're filing the H-1B petition during your 60-day grace period, uh, you're allowed to remain in the U.S. until October 1st, but you're not allowed to work. Um, we typically. So you're saying the automatic cap gap extension. You're distinguishing between the ability to work and the ability just simply to remain physically in the U.S. Exactly. It's really two different mm -hmm. uh, two different levels here. Um, if you're file if it's filed before your OPT expires, you're allowed to continue working. Otherwise, you're allowed to stay here but not to work. Okay. We call that partial cap gap. Mm -hmm. um, now, if the H-1B petition is rejected, uh, denied, or revoked then that cap gap, cap gap extension will terminate. Um, a petition can be rejected if there's what's called a lottery. In other words, the government gets more applications for H-1B status than it has available to grant. Or if there's another reason uh, that the government could not accept the case for processing. Um, Right, right. And so what Chris just explained, the lottery, and I think Korzad had kind of said we expect the quota to be reached. And as most of you know from prior years, if the quota, if all the cases, the 65,000 or plus 20, the 85,000 are all reached in the first five days, and it's all five days, five then days. there will be a lottery conducted. If there's more cases that are coming in, they will actually conduct a lottery of the cases, and that's the term that Chris just referred to. Right, exactly. We haven't seen that really for a few years, but it's it's. But there's it's a, a chance this year it's that it could actually happen. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, in order to obtain proof of your cap gap extension, um, the student has to contact their their schools for a DSO uh, to request an updated I-20 form. Um, this is their responsibility. The DSO is not responsible for reminding them to do this. Student has to proactively do this. Okay. So, I mean, again, it's uh, very important because sometimes students think that the International Students Office or the DSO, which stands for the Designated School Official, which is really the International Student Advisor for most universities, uh, they often drop the ball. So we tell individual students and individuals, and in, your, in this case, employers who have F1 students to please monitor and ensure because if the student drops the ball, then you as an employer is liable for hiring an unauthorized worker if they're not eligible to stay or legally work for you. The Student Exchange and Visitor Information System, or CVIS, recommends that students avoid travel outside the United States during this cap-gap extension because the USCIS considers the change of status request um, deems it to be an abandonment of the application if the H-1B employee actually departs the United States while the petition or application, the petition really, it's a petition for H-1B and an application for change of status, and the two are combined in that one document while it's pending. So if the student travels outside the U.S. during this gap gap, then they may need to either wait to return pursuant to the H-1B to resume employment on October 1 or Possibly under a particular memo that we talked about, the Hernandez memo, the person could actually travel outside 
and uh, only travel outside after the H-1B petition with the change of status has been approved within October for a start date. And then they go out and they come back bef- well before that in their old F-1 status with the idea that effective from October 1st, the H-1B change of status becomes effective. Now, that is a memo. That is not a law. It is not a regulation. It's not a policy guidance. So to the extent that they, I mean, it is not a um, regulation. So to the extent that a policy guidance has some force, um, there's always a small risk that the government could change their decisions or their opinions on many of these matters. Um, Chris, and what are the other issues? Okay, and if you're talking about a uh, beneficiary, an employee who's uh, not in F-1 status, not a student, uh, has a current non-immigrant status that ends before October 1st, and if they don't have the ability to, to extend that, um, then they are not able to file for a change of status to H-1B in the U.S. Uh, doesn't mean they can't do an H-1B. Uh, what it means is that the petition has to be prepared for what's called consular processing. Um, when an H-1B is approved for consular processing, um, the beneficiary has to uh, visit a U.S. embassy or consulate overseas, apply for an H-1B visa stamp, and then re-enter the United States in H-1B status um, on October 1st, or they're actually allowed in 10 days before. Right. So I often tell people it's September 21st mm-hmm. or after that you're allowed because the idea is you can start legally working on October 1st and the first few days you travel and find an apartment or unpack your bags or what have you. Exactly. Um, now, these issues concerning change of status in the U.S. are very complex, as you can probably tell, and you definitely should discuss these with an attorney who has, has knowledge of this, this field. Absolutely. And that makes a lot of sense. And I'm sure all of you hopefully either are working with a knowledgeable and reputed law firm or you have hired in-house counsel to help you. I know a lot of smaller companies, technology companies, tend to have an assistant or a secretary just type forms because they think it's a fairly simple, straightforward process. And I'm sure many of you all may have been burnt in the last few years with the uh, very common RFEs and denials of cases, particularly with mid-level vendors, uh, and even other cases. Without vendors, there have been denials of cases. Um, so uh, so clearly speaking, and hiring an, uh, an effective lawyer is critical to, to increasing the chances for the H-1 petition approval. So, Korzad, getting to a more administrative and processing type of issue, uh, can you briefly go over the different filing fees for an H-1 cap case, not that anybody here needs to really, really understand that or even remember it because they're going to work with a fabulous lawyer. They don't have a fantastic lawyer. Of course, they're hiring the Murthy Law Firm. Uh, But just to give them a sense of what are the kind, and it's an expensive process. Definitely, Sheila. Uh, The initial cap subject petitions are going to uh, require a uh, a, uh, $325 base filing fee made payable to USCIS, a $500 uh, fraud prevention and detection fee, which uh, our office strongly recommends be paid by the employer uh, because there are some uh, government pronouncements that seem to indicate that that's what the government would uh, prefer, though there are no regulations or uh, or laws on point mandating it. Either a $750 or $1,500 retraining fee uh, must be paid by the employer, unlike the fraud detection fee that I just talked about. That must be paid by the employer. There are regulations that support that. 
Um, the uh, it's a seven hundred fifty dollars for those employers that have uh, twenty five or less employees. Uh, obviously, those with uh, more than twenty five must pay the higher fee of one thousand five hundred dollars. Uh, a uh, two thousand uh, dollar border protection fee. This is a relatively new fee. Uh, compared to the others, um, also must be paid by the employer. And the employer that is uh, required to pay this fee is one which has 50 or more employees and who has more than 50% of their employees in H-1B and L-1A or L-1B status combined. So it's not just 50% of their employer employees are H-1B, it's H-1B or L-1A or L-1B. This sounds like anti-H-1L-1 employers or sort of a penalty. It sounds almost like a penalty provision because you are relying, I guess, because you're H-1B, you're foreign national dependent. So really, if you're a technology company and most of your empl- or many of your employees are foreign nationals, basically you're slapped with an additional on H-1B 2000 or L-1A, on yeah. And there's, there's a lot and of And if you're uh, a larger, debate. so if you're never successful, you're less than 50, then you're <laughs> forgiven. But if you, God forbid, you become successful, you have to pay, them, pay a penalty for it. Yeah, and there's a lot of debate out there on the internet about the punitive nature of this versus it not being a, a, a punishment. Um, for uh, subsequent um, cases, uh, renewals, uh, something like that, uh, employers can be exempt from uh, some of the above fees, which I just talked about, um, when they're extending with the same employer. Uh, there is an optional $1,225 premium processing fee. Now, premium processing fee permits employers who file H-1B petitions to get a decision on their H-1B petition faster. That's all it does. It doesn't give you an advantage in the cap. It doesn't um, give any other sort of benefit other than a speedier adjudication. Notice that I say adjudication. Adjudication means that either they'll approve it quicker or they'll uh, ask for additional evidence to put it on its way to uh, being approved quicker. Um, uh, it does not permit uh, a, a earlier start date. Premium processing doesn't change the uh, legal requirements which we talked about with respect to the mm-hmm. cap and, and availability of H-1B uh, visas. And the beautiful thing about premium processing is that you don't have to make up your mind when you're initially filing the case to mm-hmm. elect for it. Uh, you could upgrade the petition down the line as your preferences and business needs dictate. Okay, that's really, really helpful. Um, now coming to the more scary part of some of the issues that we've been seeing routinely in the last, I would say, up two, three, four, five years where comparative recent past, um, there are lots of issues being encountered, particularly by ICT consulting companies with their H-1B petitions. What are some of these problems, not just with ID, we've even been seeing it with certain hospital organizations, mm-hmm. many, many different kinds of employers where there's a, lev- a layer between you and the direct employee that automatically seems to raise a red flag for the government. And what are these kinds of issues? Chris, if you would go over some of these. Sure. Uh, Sheila, the three most common things uh, that we see coming up with H-1Bs are employer-employee relationship, uh, work location, and end-client documentation issues. Um, Employer-employee relationship is something that's come up a lot in recent years, uh, and we've certainly discussed this in previous teleconferences here uh, many times. Um, USCS has really altered uh, the H-1B landscape back in January 8, 2010 with what's called the Newfeld Memo. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this. Um, This memo basically made it clear that employers have to show that they have what we call the right to control uh, their H-1B employees. Um, And it said that merely hiring, firing, paying, and providing uh, benefits like insurance are not enough to show this employer-employee relationship. 
Um, the employer has to has to demonstrate uh, that they have the ability to control uh, the manner and the means by which the work being done the being done by the employee is is being done. Um, they have to exhibit some day-to-day -day control over what he's doing, uh, he or she is doing. Um, this control should not come from the end client or from a vendor, has to come from their employer. Um, and also, this control has to continue for the entire H-1B uh, duration being requested. If and that's one of the reasons they only give it for sometimes six months or one year, the petition approval, even though the employer requests sometimes two or three years and gets very upset because obviously it's very expensive to hire and pay all these kinds of legal fees, filing fees, processing fees, et cetera. Exactly. That's very common that we, we just don't have the documentation to, to support a three-year three H-1B. And occasionally in that situation, we'll affirmatively ask only for one year or for a year and a half uh, just to, to have a better chance of an approval and a better chance to avoid a request for evidence. Um, now, USCIS has to be able to determine through the documents that you submit with your H-1B application uh, if you have, if the employer has a sufficient level of control over their employee, uh, and this is mm, primarily an issue when that employee is at a third-party location, uh, in other words, the client location. And some of the things USCIS will look at is uh, whether the petitioner has the right to assign additional duties to the employee, um, the extent of the uh, employer's discretion over when and how long the employee will work, and who provides uh, what's referred to as the instrumentalities and tools needed to perform the job. Uh, that could be things like laptops, uh, cell phones, Blackberries. Um, now, USCIS has repeatedly said that payment of wages is the least important factor. Um, sort of in, in the uh, common, sort of common sense explanation of who's an employee, paying wages is a very, a very important thing. Not so for USCIS. Pay, payment of wages is, is not, a, not a major factor. Um, oh, okay, wonderful. Um, what about the workload? Did you want to add something more? I'm sorry, Chris. Well, I mean, we'll have, as I was just going to say, we have some suggestions for employ uh, avoiding a request for evidence on this um, later on today in the, in the teleconference. Okay, so we're going to discuss it in a we few will. minutes. Okay, and Corza, do you want to dis touch upon the next point that uh, Chris briefly mentioned as the work location issue? Sure, Sheila. Um, the USCIS continues to request, and we continue to advise, that employers list all actual work sites um, identified at the time of filing on the H-1B uh, uh, petition and in the labor condition application. Uh, if it appears that the employee is going to be working at more than one location, for example, in the home office and the client office, uh, the, the regulations require and we advise that a uh, good itinerary support the H-1B petition as well. Um, also, for each work location, as I briefly mentioned, there must be a, a certified labor condition application for that work location at the time of filing. Um, information regarding changed locations and new LCAs for new locations cannot be submitted in response to an RFE. The, uh, uh, you know, with, with each H-1B um, petition, the LCA uh, that supports it must have been certified and filed before filing of the H-1B petition. Uh, another issue with respect to work locations that everybody has to keep in mind is uh, the fact that USCIS continues the use of its uh, administrative site visit program on a much more common basis. This is where USCIS sends either a contractor or many times a federal employee to the uh, work location as listed in the H-1B petition or, um, and uh, LCA. Uh, when USCIS conducts site visits, uh, they... Um, 
you know, visit the work address located in the form I-129. So if the beneficiary's work location is going to be changed after the H-1B is approved, uh, we strongly recommend that an amended petition be filed rather than simply obtaining an updated LCA and posting as required uh, in the Department of Labor um, regulations. It's advisable to actually file an amended H-1B and let USCIS know that uh, where the um, employee is going to be uh, working at. Okay, that sounds great. And Chris, if you could uh, briefly touch upon the issue of what are the kinds of end client documents that would help the H-1 employer to establish a bona fide um, you know, specialty occupation, because that's one of the other favorite reasons for issuing RFEs or denials is, hey, we're not convinced this is a true specialty occupation. <coughs> exactly. And this is a very important factor here. Um, if you have an H-1B worker who will be working on specific client uh, projects, uh, you have to have evidence of those projects and how long they'll be continuing. So contracts, purchase orders, uh, statements of work, and uh, probably most importantly, a letter from the end client if you can obtain it. Um, also, if there are mid-vendors involved, um, you have to have all the contractual documents relating to the, to the mid-vendors. Um, it's very common in the IT industry that you'll have multiple mid-vendors uh, between the employer and the client. You have to show each step in that chain. Uh, if you have any gaps in those contracts or any gaps in those letters, it's, it's certainly a situation where USCIS is very likely to issue an RFE. Um, USCIS in the past several years has become increasingly strict about in-client contracts and in-client letters uh, to verify that the, the petitioner really has a specialty occupation job available for the entire duration that you're requesting in that petition. So if you're requesting a three-year H-1B approval, um, ideally you want an in-client who will verify in their letter uh, that the project is going to continue for three years. Um, without some sort of in-client contract or letter, uh, USCIS can deny the H-1B or uh, potentially approve it for a duration that's uh, a lot shorter than what you had requested. Mm -hmm. um, and we understand that it can be very difficult to get these documents. Uh, Client, in-client contracts, in-client letters sometimes are, are impossible or close to impossible. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah, and, you know, what we as a, as a firm do for our, our clients many, many times is uh, offer our services extra and apart from just what we usually do to prepare and advise our clients, but we also are willing to speak to our, our clients' mid-vendors or end clients, their valued business associates, um, to explain the USCIS requirements and the importance of these documents and how they can help our joint business, uh, your joint business needs with them to enhance your partnership. Okay, wonderful. You know, in a, you know, these documents that we just discussed that Chris was uh, so eloquent in describing, you know, they talk about the uh, the fact and they confirm that a job actually exists. But as uh, Chris very clearly alluded to, the fact that a job exists must it must also be shown that it's going to endure for the uh, time period that's been requested in the H-1B petition. So that makes duration a very very important element to prove. Duration can be shown with end client letters like, uh, and, and end client documents like what Chris was talking about, but also contracts or uh, purchase orders or uh, statements of work that indicate duration. Um, project plans or project timelines can be equally valuable uh, and, or, or any other internal documentation about the work that's going to be done um, that, that, that requires the uh, need for the H-1B uh, employee resource. Employer may be able to utilize other forms of evidence, too, to demonstrate their bona fide uh, specialty occupation and the duration of same. 
Um, however, using alternative documents without providing letters, contracts, SOWs, becomes secondary evidence. And secondary evidence without you know a, a smattering of primary evidence um, uh, you know interspersed with it can result in your strongest possible case being potentially watered down a little bit and the consequences that Chris talked about like uh, a shorter duration or the issuance of a request for evidence to clarify matters becoming a more a more likely outcome uh, bottom line whatever documents you have you want to make sure that they're clear concise properly dated and signed by all relevant parties as ex- as applicable Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you, Korzad. So we're going to try because we're always very mindful of the time and we realize it's just past 30 minutes. We're going to wrap up in less than five to 10 minutes from now, as we always do between 30 and 40 minutes. But we have uh, we would like to briefly go over the proactive steps that you as an employer uh, could take to try and avoid an RFE regarding the entire employee employee relationship. So let me get started by saying that uh, touching upon what Korzad and Chris just, just talked about, which is the end-client letter, which should indicate that the petitioner has the right to control the work of the beneficiary or the employee, and the end-client does not have the ability or the right to assign the beneficiary to another workplace. Also document that the H-1B employer has the, obviously, uh, they have the right, and they do, the hire and pay, and they have the ability to fire in the employment contract, in the offer letter, or in the employee handbook, and to ensure that the handbook is signed by the employee to evidence that the employee has actually read the handbook. Not that that guarantees it, but at least you go through the motions. And of course, the employment contract or offer letter or the employee handbook should also indicate how the beneficiary will be supervised by the H-1B employer. For example, identify the supervisor, the name, the title, uh, you know, how often do you report to each other, the ma- methodology for reporting, including information regarding performance reviews, etc. So, Chris and Korzad, I'd like you to briefly, maybe Chris, start off with you. Just could you go over maybe two or three of them? Sure. Uh, an important thing that you want to document is your reporting, is the reporting of the employee to the employer or the, the beneficiary to the petitioner. Um, this all goes to showing that the, the employer is actually exercising control over their employees. So things like um, emails where you're reporting to the employer, um, daily, weekly project, uh, project status reports, um, phone logs, anything that shows your communication with the, with the H-1B employer. Um, if the company does routine performance evaluations uh, every six months or every year, uh, you certainly want to save those uh, to have those available for your for your H-1B filing. Um, if there are benefits provided by the employer, uh, health insurance, dental, uh, life insurance, you want to save all those documents to have them available for your for your H-1B filing because this all goes to showing that the the employer employee relationship really exists there. Okay, and Corza, do you want to just touch upon a couple? Yeah, and a couple, you know, a couple more things. Uh, in today's interconnected world, a lot of employers provide uh, their employees with um, technology to co- to undertake the duties of their position: cell phones, Blackberries, iPhones, uh, laptop computers, uh, technical manuals, desk reference manuals, organizational tools, anything and everything that uh, you that an employer provides to help their employee do what they need to do at their client site uh, is, is, is fair game to show a employer-employee relationship as well as the, uh, as well as, uh, the existence of an actual position or uh, specialty occupation. Um, 
uh, additionally, if the uh, if besides technology, the employee is going to be using the employer's proprietary information or product mm-hmm. to uh, undertake the duties of the job, provide evidence of that. That can be pa- you know patented products, licensed products, trademark products, company specific project protocols, execution procedures, procedures, manuals, guides, project plans, uh, etc. Company policy documents, even. Mm-hmm. Um, Finally, uh, many times employers pay third-party vendors to provide training to their employees Mm -hmm. to get them needed certificates from Microsoft or business objects or any any other uh, of those tools and technologies that make our uh, technology backbone work in many of our employers. So uh, proof of providing that training, uh, invoices for for that training can, can be very, very valuable. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, so we've really given you a quick, broad overview as much as one could, trying to touch upon all of the complexities, the nuances, and different kinds of little tips to try to minimize and hopefully eliminate your RFEs and hopefully greatly increase the chances for your H-1 petition approvals. Um, needless to say, the Murthy Law Firm has an incredible team. You just heard from two of our most amazing, brilliant lawyers here. Uh, to help smoothen the process and guide you through all of the complex and sometimes hopefully less complex issues dealing with H-1Bs. It is a really difficult process. The rules keep changing, and the government ensures that they make it exciting and invigorating and challenging for all of us with them constantly issuing new memos and new guidance and new regulations and then saying the memo that we wrote before is superseded by a new memo or that memos themselves don't have the force of law, etc. So if you would like to file your petitions, it's already high, high, high time. Uh, In fact, it's probably starting to get a little late, especially if the quota does get used up in the first two or three days in April of 2013 for a start date of October 1st, 2013. Um, Maybe you're just a little early for next year and maybe it's time to get started, but let's keep our fingers crossed. Let's hope the the quota stays open. And uh, here's to another incredible year for all of you with great success in for you in your business and in hiring the best and most talented workforce that your business truly deserves and we would love to be your partner in that endeavor have a wonderful spring and summer and uh, all the best